0: Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kieveman. And today, as World Jewry commemorate the return to the land of Israel after so many years of exile, let us take some time to discuss a little bit of the significance, the importance of the land of Israel to us as the Jewish nation. What place does the land of Israel hold in the Jewish consciousness and in Jewish life? Why is Israel so important to us as a nation? Why do we even need a homeland? Let's discuss a little bit about the significance of Israel. And I guess a good starting point is that every day, three times a day, throughout our history, Jews pray to, in the direction of Israel, wherever we might be. If Jews are in America or I grew up or Europe, then you face east as you're facing towards Jerusalem. In uh, Russia and Syria, facing south. Here in South Africa or other parts of this continent, facing north. In China and Australia, they're gonna face west. We're all facing the same place. Yerushalayim, Irakodesh, Jerusalem, the holy city, our capital, as well as the Holy Land of Israel. That is the direction in which we face when we pray. Very interestingly, in the book of Daniel, where it describes Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel, who was a Jewish prince, a prophet, was a high-ranking minister in the court of Emperor Darius, and Darius just conquered the Babylonian Empire. The other ministers were jealous of Daniel's position. And if you read that story, which I was recently, knowing that Daniel was a faithful Jew, they induced the king to decree that whoever makes any request of any God or man except from you, the king, should be cast into a pit of lions, which is a very famous story of how Daniel winds up in the lion's den. And when Daniel was discovered praying to God, That's what happened exactly so he was thrown into the lion's den. And miraculously, the verse says God sent his angel and he closed the mouth of the lions and they didn't hurt Daniel. What did Daniel do at that stage before such? Well, the Book of Prophets describes how Daniel opens the window and faces towards Jerusalem when he prays. You're talking an event 2400 years ago. This is sometime after the destruction of the first holy temple in Jerusalem. The exile of the Jewish people from our homeland to Babylon. That's perhaps the first time when Jews are completely exiled from the land. But we find in Tanakh, in our scriptures, in the books of our prophets, this practice of facing towards Jerusalem, a city that was desolate and in ruins at the time, and when praying. Where, in which direction did Daniel pray? Keeping our ancestral homeland uppermost in our minds, that's the direction in which Daniel prayed. And this is the direction in which Jews always pray. Now, yes, of course, I know God, of course, is everywhere. We could reach out to Hashem, God will hear us, in whatever direction we might face when we pray. But nevertheless, we as Jews, our tradition custom for thousands of years is that we face towards Yerushalayim as we pray, in order to acknowledge that there is a place in this physical world that serves as the epicenter of our relationship with God, and so, because Jerusalem is exactly that place, our remembrance of Israel and Yerushalayim is not confined to our physical orientation, the way we just the way we face when we pray. Each time we approach God to request our needs in prayer, we actually evoke, we recall, we constantly yearn and strive to return to Jerusalem. Think about how many of our prayers every single day we make reference to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the future redemption that we yearn and pray for. So this is not just uh, that facing Jerusalem and praying for our return to the land of Israel. This is all part of the Jewish tradition, our prayers, and not just prayers. When we bench, we, before we say grace after meals, benching, the same thing. We recite every single day we, 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 in, during the week when it's not, when Tachnon is said. We recite Anara's Babel, famous psalm describing our ancestors weeping at the rivers of Babylon. Sham yashavnu gam There we sat, we wept. <speaking in Hebrew> as we recall, as we remember Jer- Zion, Jerusalem. <speaking in Hebrew> we describe how we hung our harps on willows there. For there our captors asked us to sing songs. Our tormentors insisted on joyful tunes that was their way. They said to us, sing us of the songs of Zion. That's what they demanded. Every day we recite this passage, this verse, how can we sing the songs of God, how can we say this al-admas ne'char on foreign soil. And there's something very interesting about this. When Nebuchadnezzar demanded of the Leviim, that they sing for him songs of Zion, they actually bit off their own thumbs and they said to him, how can we sing the songs of God on foreign soil. They didn't say we won't sing, but rather. How? How shall we sing? How should we sing when we lack the ability to play our harps when they were mourning for the destruction of Jerusalem? And then comes those famous words that we recite at every wedding and we say it when we Yerushalayim. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. Tidbak Lishoni Lichiki, may my tongue cleave to my palate, Imloya Skerechi, if I did not remember you. Imlo if I did not recall Es Arosh, Arosh, Aroshim Hati, if I did not recall Jerusalem at the height of my joy. And according to tradition, this Psalm of Tehillim describes the resolve of the Levim to resist the orders of the Babylonian captors that they should sing the songs of the Temple. They said, Eich Nach Shir, how can we sing these songs of Jerusalem on foreign soil? Think about Shabbos on Yom Tov. We don't say this psalm, instead we sing Shir HaMalos. What's Shir HaMalos? Again, B'Shuv HaShem HaTziyon We describe how God will return the returnees of Zion, will be like dreamers. So again, over and over, we could see whether it's before Benching or during Benching, where we, again we say, Rachem, Uv'nei Yerushalayim, various prayers. Every time we break bread, we recall the land of Israel. The divine promise that it will be restored to us, and not only in our prayers and benching. You know, for much of Jewish history, the people of Israel were not the sovereign power in the land of Israel. We know that our history for for eighteen hundred years or so, since the catastrophic events of the first and second centuries, when the temple was destroyed, when Jews were exiled from Israel until pretty much our own generation, the great majority of Jews were born and lived their lives and died without ever setting foot in their ancestral homeland. Yet the land never ceased to be foremost in the Jewish consciousness. The walls of shuls and Jewish homes throughout diaspora were always decorated with images and scenes from the Holy Land the Western Wall, the Temple Mount in Yerushalayim, the Ma'aras um, HaMachtele, the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron, um, in Bethlehem, the Rachel's Tomb. So many scenes. There's hardly an event or milestone in the life of a Jew at which the Jewish homeland is not invoked. Under a chuppah, under a wedding canopy, a glass is broken, I'm Yerushalayim, remember the destruction of Jerusalem. At the other extreme, what happens when, God forbid, somebody is in mourning for a loved one? What do we wish them, that God should come from amongst the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem? And of course, think we just came from Pesach. What do we say at the conclusion of every Pesach Seder and the awe-inspiring shofar blast that signals the end of Yom Kippur? We all shout out in unison, L'Shanna Haba B'Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. Whatever might be going on in our lives, from the everyday to the most joyous occasion to the saddest, our experience as Jews is inseparable from our relationship with the land of Israel. In every generation, there were those who translated yearning into action and actually made Aliyah, picked up their feet and went to the land of Israel. We discussed the pilgrimage festival that's called Ola Regal to to ascend Regal with our feet to take the action to go to to Israel. In fact the very word, the term Aliyah that's used throughout Jewish history to describe the immigrations of the Jewish people to Israel. What does it express? Aliyah means to ascend. It expresses the place that the land holds in Jewish consciousness. To go up to Israel. The Gemara in fact notes that throughout the Tanakh journeys to the Holy Land are always referred to as Aliyah, to go up. Departures from the land of Israel are described as a Yerida, going down from Israel. What does this teach us? That the land of Israel is higher than all the other lands, the Gemara tells us. What does this mean? Not necessarily in a, in a uh, physical sense, but certainly spiritually, the land of Israel takes the highest place for us Jews. And during the last 2000 years, there were periods when, fort- unfortunately, the conditions in the land of Israel were, were extremely precarious for its Jewish population. And yet, still Jews came, fulfilling a lifelong dream to live out their lives on the sacred soil of Israel. And those who cannot realize the dream themselves, they contributed to the support of those who did live in the Holy Land. There were many emissaries called Shadarim, They traveled all over the world to virtually every Jewish community collecting money for the Yishuv, for the settlement in the land of Israel. Even the most impoverished families would set aside a few coins each year to support the Jews who were able, who actually lived in the Jewish homeland. And this is something throughout our history. In fact, Maimonides talks about the, 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 the importance of supporting the land of Israel, And he describes how the greatest sages would kiss the earth and the land when they would come there. And if they couldn't come to the land of Israel, then they would kiss anything that came in contact with them from the land of Israel, whether it's stones or books or whatever it might be. So this was something that the land of Israel, he he himself, by the way, Maimonides lived, went to Israel, unfortunately couldn't live there. So he moved to uh, Egypt but then he was buried in Israel in the city of Tiberias. The greatest of Jewish sages throughout our history always made a point in whatever way possible to make Aliyah to go to the land of Israel at least to visit very famous words from the philosopher Rabbi Yehuda Halevi who lived in the 12th century and in fact there's a song often played here on Hayefam li bibam mizrah my heart is in the east and me i i am in the west but it's a song describing how the the yearning to go back to return to the land of Israel how that was always of, a, of the greatest uh, Jewish yearning, it was the the Jewish consciousness connection to the Land of Israel. And this, of course, tells us no doubt how important the Land of Israel is and was throughout our history. So despite millennia of exile, of galus, the Land of Israel has always remained foremost in the Jews' consciousness and is the object of our yearning. We recall it every day in our prayers, in our benching, in our milestones, both happy and sad. And we describe how Jews made their way in any way possible to be connected with the land of Israel. We'll be right back. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Salt to Saul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Keevman. Great to be with you here this afternoon. And today we're talking a little bit about the history of the Jewish people and the land of Israel. Now, certainly in more recent history, <clears throat> one century ago, the British were the ones who ruled the Holy Land from 1917 to 1948, and they severely restricted Jewish immigration to the Holy Land. You think about during the 1930s and early 1940s, when Jews from Europe were desperately seeking a safe haven from Nazi genocide, they found the gates of their own ancestral homeland closed to them. The same was the case for the survivors of the Holocaust who wanted to rebuild their lives in Israel. My own father, in 1947, tried to get to Israel on the Exodus ship, but were prevented from entering by the British. In fact, last week was Yom HaShoah, which reminds us of why we have the land of Israel, even though yesterday Yom HaZikaron reminded us perhaps the price we pay for the land of Israel. The establishment of the state of Israel in May of 1948 provided the opportunity for many Jews to realize the dream of living in the land of Israel. The state of Israel's first constitutional act by the provincial council was a proclamation that all legislation resulting from the British government's white paper of May 1938, 39 will become null and void. And this includes the immigration provisions. Now, that time that the finally a Jewish independent government was established for the first time in 19 centuries. Hundreds of thousands of Jews arrived from every corner of the world. Many Holocaust survivors who were still stuck in Europe, living in DP camps under very difficult conditions, finally made it to return to the land of Israel. And of course, this wasn't an easy time. My father lived there at that stage in pre-state Israel as a survivor coming to the land and knowing that Israel was constantly under attack. The neighboring countries did not accept the partition plan, did not accept Israel's right to exist. And over and over and over, Israel was attacked again and again and again. But yet, 74 years later, we could look around and see how different the situation is. Whereas many Arab countries are still hostile towards Israel, today Israel does have peace with several Arab countries. Whereas the Jewish population, then I don't know exactly what it was in 1948 and certainly pre-1948, today Israel is over 7 million Jews living in the land out of a total population of 9.5 million. The strength and the sophistication of Israel's military has so much more improved, which is perhaps why more and more countries want to have relations with Israel. Israel is a shining light to the world in so many ways. The economy has developed. Israel is now a world leader in technology and medicine. Any country that wants to be hostile to Israel has only itself to lose from what the other countries gain and benefit from having a friendship and alliance with Israel. Israel has made so many attempts for peace with its Arab neighbors, and yes, some some peace treaties are there, even if they're not exactly the best situations, and I'm not endorsing or approving any one of those situations in what I'm saying, but my point though is that Israel's situation no doubt has improved even though there's no doubt that it's existent the very existence of the state is still threatened right here in this country there are many people who don't want to tolerate the existence of the state of Israel there's an Iranian nuclear threat the daily toll of terrorism just a few weeks ago my sister was describing to me in Tel Aviv where she lives how a gunman was running loose outside her house and she had to be hiding Hamas and its rockets in Gaza. You got Hezbollah and the Katushas in Lebanon. You have all uh, ISIS, all types of threats, existential threats that Israel still faces. Most of Israel's neighbors have yet to accept the very fact that Israel exists. And yet, even in those Arab countries that have signed the peace treaties, Egypt and and Jordan, and. Uh, To uh, look at the other countries, Um, Morocco, where many of the people aren't uh, approving of their country's treaty with Israel, or Sudan. I think the the Emirates is a much better situation, but a lot of their populations in these countries are still anti-Israel, as is the press and media and the academic institutions. So as much as the situation has improved, Israel still is not in the best situation the international community, especially the representatives in the UN and all their committees, they display incredible bias discrimination against Israel. The the media is constantly anti-Israel. There are various BDS or whatever other names they wanna call themselves that are constantly imposing or trying to infiltrate and instigate all types of condemnations and boycotts of Israel. So, no doubt that Israel still has lots to, lots to look forward to in improvement. But regardless whether Israel is in a better or uh, worse condition than in the past, it seems that at least in certain respects that Israel's very right to exist as a Jewish state is still constantly questioned and certainly in this country, there's still the apartheid claims against Israel. When the whole world seems to be saying that Israel's in the wrong, today is a day that we have to wonder and ask ourselves, what is the basis for a Jewish claim to the land of Israel? And that's really what I want to discuss with you a little bit. Certainly from a historical perspective, there's no doubt that the international Uh, Law, although there's lots of opposition, there is validity and claim to the land. And from a Jewish survivalist perspective, and what I hopefully intend to conclude with, no doubt, is from a Torah perspective, as after all we're here on soul to soul. But let's look at some of these aspects. Again, we could dissect them, we could look at them, we could examine them, we could think about them, and no doubt there are there are counter arguments to each of these aspects, certainly given today's highly charged political atmosphere, but I guess that's always been the case. There's no doubt that any aspect that we discuss or present, there will always be counter arguments to it, and no doubt about that. But throughout Jewish history, which we discussed before, No serious historian denies that the Holy Land has been the homeland of the Jewish people for more than 3,000 years and under Jewish sovereignty for more centuries during that period. You go all the way back to King David and King Solomon and the kingdoms of Judah and Israel and yes, there were challenges during those periods as well. That's all certainly even corroborated by not only archaeological evidence but Any serious historian knows that's the case, both the First and Second Temple's existence on the Temple Mount where the Al-Aqsa Mosque exists today. And even while the land was under foreign rule, which it was throughout most of the past 19th centuries, it never ceased to be the Jewish homeland. In every generation there were Jews living in the Holy Land, even though at times the numbers dwindled to just a few thousand. The Diaspora Museum in Israel has a photo of a Jewish family who has lived in the same village in the Galilee for dozens of generations, since the time of the first temple. This uninterrupted presence in the land of Israel by many Jewish families throughout our history. If you look at Israel's declaration of independence, which was signed tomorrow, tomorrow is the 74th anniversary of the signing of that independence. I just wanna pull it up and read to you an excerpt from it. The land of Israel is the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, the spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here, they first attained statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave the world the eternal book of books. After being forcibly exiled from the land, the people kept faith with it throughout the diaspora and never ceased to pray and hope for the return to it and for the restoration to it, the restoration in it of their political freedom. In 1897, at the summons of the spiritual father of the Jewish state, Theodor Herzl, the first Zionist Congress convened and proclaimed the right to the Jewish people to national rebirth in its own country. So, of course, as we, See, there's, there's lots. Now, I know there could be arguments. I mean, some people will say, just because you once ruled a place doesn't give you the right to come back two th- years, 2,000 years later and, and take it back, right? Do the Greeks have the right to retake Egypt? Uh, there's lots of arguments, no doubt, okay? But the first main point is the historical argument. Israel has been the homeland of the Jewish people for more than 3,000 years. And in every generation, even while the land was under foreign rule, there were Jews living there. Yes, you could counter argue that just because we once ruled it or because we also conquered it from others. Now, we know that Jews are also great lawyers. Look here in this community alone, how many of the great law firms are headed by Jewish people. The founders of the state of Israel went to great pains to establish it on a firm legal foundation under international law. And whether it was the Balfour Declaration or under the League of Nations, the United Nations partition plan, all that was done under the legal perspective. Okay, the state of Israel stands on a very firm legal foundation under international law. Yet still, others might argue, if Israel's right to sovereignty in its ancient homeland is an international argument, what happens if the UN is passing resolutions, which they do stripping Israel of its right so again, what I'm trying to articulate is the weakness within each of these foundations. And of course, essentially, the Jewish survival that we had Yom HaZikaron, which is the price we pay for living in the land of Israel. And last week Yom HaShoah, which is the price we pay for not having the land of Israel. One of the driving forces behind the modern Zionist movement was the quest to find a solution to the Jewish question, which unfortunately we faced anti-Semitism and expulsions and inquisitions and Holocausts and you name it, the discrimination and the hatred and persecution that our people have experienced throughout our history. For 2000 years, we were expelled and slaughtered with impunity every land in which we have resided, we have been regarded as foreigners, as interlopers, as, as, as anything, all the names the anti-Semites have called us. And so our well-being, even our very lives, depended on the tolerance of our host governments. At times, yes, we flourished and, and prospered and seemed to have attained citizenship and equal rights, but those golden ages were not always long-lived. Antisemitism constantly reared its head and constantly threatened us from one place to the next. You look at medieval Spain as an example, where Jews lived and prospered. There was the golden era of Jewish life in Spain. And then it turned its ugly head on us and inquisition, expulsion. You look at at Germany and you look at Soviet Russia and so many places throughout Europe in many, many places. Yes, we were welcome for some time. And in fact, you know, I have, Polish ancestry, my mother's side, and the Jews of Poland said, Pauline, here we could rest and and live comfortably. Yes, but there was terrible anti-Semitism. During the Holocaust, many Jews perished because no country, including the British government who controlled Palestine at the time, would accept those seeking refuge to escape from Nazi Europe. The Allies battling the Germans Even refused the desperate requests to bomb the train lines to Auschwitz to disrupt, to some way, at least slow the pace of the Nazi killing machine. We have nobody to rely on. And over and over, as a stateless people, we were powerless. We were dependent on those who hate us or at best were indifferent to our fate. Only as a sovereign people, with our own country, with our own government, with our own army, did we realize we would be capable of defending ourselves to this day. And this is included in Israel's Declaration of Independence as well. Let me just read it to you. The catastrophe which re- which recently befell the Jewish people. The massacre of millions of Jews in Europe was another clear demonstration of the urgency of solving the problem of its homelessness by reestablishing in the land of Israel the Jewish state. Which, upon, which opened the gates of the homeland, wide to every Jew and confer upon the Jewish people the status of a fully privileged member of the committee of nations. Now, of course, counter arguments, no doubt, are plentiful, okay? Yes, it's very true that you guys uh, didn't have a state and therefore you deserve a place to be safe But I've heard the counter arguments. Why does your homeland have to be in the land of Israel? What's wrong with Uganda or other places that were proposed? And Jews are in greater danger in the land of Israel where you're surrounded by enemy states. And there's many other arguments why the world should not be hosting the land of Israel. Now I think we can all agree that based on any of these arguments and certainly the, you know that that there's a a, a well founded claim for Jews to the land of Israel, as we discussed historically, it was our land as we discussed legally as we discussed, the survival element certainly no less than any others have a right to their land, whether it's Africans to Africa or Americans to America or Russians to Russia, Ukrainians to Ukraine, or French to France. How many other nations can show roots? in the land in which they lived going back that many years. 3,800 years of uninterrupted Jewish presence in the land of Israel, that it's our country. How many other nations can say that their country was established by international consensus rather than through invasion and forceful occupation, which is what most other countries or many other countries certainly. And how many other nations could argue that their very existence, both as a people and as individuals depends on having a country of their own. Otherwise, their very survival is threatened. There are more than 190 countries in the world today. Virtually every single one of them is occupying land that they acquired, whether through conquest, invasion, or settlement, whatever it might be. And this, of course, raises the big question. Why does the world have such a problem, an obsession with the Jewish state? The more we think of it, the more mind-boggling it is makes absolutely no sense. The situation in which Israel finds itself today is an anomaly, unprecedented in human history. No one's telling America to return California to Mexico or arguing that Australia be turned over to the aborigines. You think about what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now, which finally, yes, there's, there's some uproar. But again, people moving on. As we speak, there are so many territorial conflicts going on in many global hotspots right now, currently. Whether it's Northern Ireland or uh, Kashmir and uh, Tibet, Cyprus, Turkey and the Kurds. What's happening, Russia and Ukraine on, on a daily, ongoing basis? All of these world problems, okay. But Israel, oh, that's... That's the obsession of the world. Every day, which other country gets as many condemnations as Israel does? Why is it only the Jews who are accused of taking other people's land? Why this double standard? For what reason? And certainly we see that it it doesn't make sense. And there has to be more to this conflict than meets the eye and so we'll be back in a moment. And I would like to share with you a little bit of the Torah perspective on this story. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kibman. And today we're talking about the land of Israel and our claim to the land of Israel. Let's go to the very beginning of the Torah. The very first verse, the Torah starts with Beresh Bara Barah Le'kimas HaShemayim Ves In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Indeed, the beginning of everything seems a most natural place to begin, right? But Rashi takes issue with that assumption. Rashi was the foremost commentator on the Torah, universally recognized as such, and he sees this very verse as one of the most fundamental verses of the Torah, not only about the history of creation, but about our claim and rights to the land of Israel. Let me read Rashi's commentary to you. Rashi says, If the Torah is a book of laws, it makes sense the Torah should start with a law. What's the very first law given to the Jewish people? Accountability for time. Yet the Torah begins with history. In the beginning God created heaven and earth. Why? Says Rashi, because, very simple, quoting a verse in Tehillim, the strength of his works he related to his people, to give them the inheritance of the nations. Says Rashi, that if any of the nations of the world will say to Israel, Listimatem, you are thieves for having conquered the land of the other nations that preoccupied it, Israel could reply, the entire world is God's. He created it and granted it to whoever he desires. It was his will to give it to those nations, and it was his will to take it from them and give it to us. The Torah, as Rashi's putting it, is not just a history book, it is a book of laws and instructions, and gives us all the various laws and instructions that define the covenant between God and the Jewish people. So the Torah should have begun with the law of the very first law that was given to us, but Rashi tells us no. And Rashi, don't forget, lived about a thousand years ago. Rashi's quoting the Talmudic sage of the Gemara, Rabbi Yitzchak, who lived centuries before him. But it sounds like this very same story throughout history, whatever station or channel or media outlet, same claim over and over, you are thieves. Rashi is explaining to us why the Torah begins with the story of creation which takes up the first two chapters of Genesis and after that the Torah relates the story of Adam and Eve and the paradise and Noah and, and the flood and the lives of our patriarchs and matriarchs and the story of, of Joseph and his brothers and the enslavement in Egypt and all the other things. Why does this all come before the very first commandment, the very first law, says Rashi, it is not only about telling us the story, the account of history, but it is to tell us who created the world and the very, the very one, the creator of the universe gives us the land of Israel. And yes, the Torah describes how humanity failed over and over again, whether we read about the tadas, the the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, And the generation of the deluge, the flood, etc. Why does the Torah tell us this? To tell us that we are God's partners in creation, that we have to develop the world in accordance with the divine plan, that we're all here on a mission. And then came Abraham and Sarah who recognized the truth of God and began to teach it to the world. God makes a covenant with them With Avraham and his descendants who will serve as the Or Lagoyim, the light unto the nations to bring the world in harmony with its creator. And that covenant was reiterated to Yitzchak, to Yaakov. Every step of the way this mission is bound up with the promise of the land of Israel to the descendants of Avraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov. The times that this promise is repeated in the Torah are so many. It's, it's so many times in Lech Lecha we read how God promises us at the Brisbane Absarim, the, the covenant between the parts at uh, God's promise to Yitzchak, that his seed, his seed will be the successors, that, that his descendants, God's promise to Yaakov Avinu and the promise at the Exodus, which we just celebrated Pesach and discussed so much of. So indeed, the Torah as our title deed to the land of Israel. And it, 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 that's not all. Throughout the Torah, and particularly in the book of Deuteronomy and Devarim, the whole of the Torah and its mitzvahs are presented as a mandate to fulfill within the land which God is going to give us. In fact, most of the Torah's 613 commandments can only be fulfilled in the Holy Land. So most of the commandments that we do today, we do a minority of, of the actual commandments that, and, and outside of Israel, so many of those commandments we can't even fulfill. So we Jews are a spiritual people. Our primary concern is with matters of the soul, not only the physical. Even the world recognizes this. They call us the people of the book, right? Billions of people practice religions based on and inspired by the message that we as the Jewish people have brought to humankind. So many of the world's countries and religions You know, you look at Sweden that appointed itself the judge of human achievement, you know, the the Nobel Prizes. The world sees us as a primary source of wisdom and morality. Think of how many Nobel Prizes were given to Jewish people of all the, like uh, this unbelievable number, the percentage of how many Jews are represented in that. We're meant to be the light unto the nations. So. It seemingly makes no sense that we claim a mundane piece of land. It hardly makes sense that we should possess physical bodies. Forget about cities and farms and airports and army bases. The Jewish people, we belong to the spiritual realm seemingly. So why are we seemingly so obsessed and fascinated by the land of Israel? Why is it so important to us? Yet Rashi says, that very first verse in the Torah, the beginning God created heaven and earth is telling us that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. God assigned a specific land to us and imbued it with the qualities that enable us to create there a very mundane but a divinely perfect, a spiritual but physical society in life. God wants morality and holiness not only in the schools and in the study halls, but in every part of society and life, including our healthcare, uh, uh, garbage and agriculture, and, and you name it, it's all part and parcel of the way we express our divine mission in this world. The example set by Eretz Yisrael, that of holiness that permeates the physical and the mundane life is supposed to impact not only Israel, we're meant to be a light unto the entire world. And when this goal will be completely accomplished, when we as the Jewish people will fulfill that role, then indeed the world will be a much better place. Our mission is to bring our own lives into harmony with God in the land of Israel, so that our example could radiate, could transform the entire world in a positive, in a good, in a magnificent way that the entire land of Israel, that will be an example to the, to the rest of the world. That example will radiate and transform everything. So my friends, as time is coming to its conclusion of today's show, we can go back to the question we asked earlier. Why is Israel treated so differently from all the other nations about our need and right for our own land and I would say ultimately because we are different yes on this day that we are celebrating Israel's independence let us remember beyond anti-semitism and all the other misconceptions about Israel the world sees our Jewishness as something spiritual something that seems to be relegated to the shuls or Shabbos tables they see us as Jewish because of our intellectual our spiritual pursuits Our God, in in others' estimation, is the God of the heavens, not of the earth. The notion of a Jewish state seems to confuse them. Well, you're a holy people. Just be holy. And my friends, this is exactly why we need the land of Israel. To show the world that indeed it's within the mundane physical state of Israel where we could express our spirituality. So the historical arguments that we discussed and the international arguments and the Jewish survival arguments, maybe they're all valid arguments. They work just fine for every other people, for every other nation and country. But for the Jewish people that is not enough. The fact is that the world is not accepting those arguments for why the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. There is a very fundamental component that is missing and we need to be able to tell the world. In fact, Israel's declaration of independence touches on all three arguments for our claim to the land. But the one thing that's actually glaringly missing is that there's no mention of the divine promise that is contained in the Torah. And so this is what the message I think of today is. The land of Israel is ours. We have to first know ourselves why it's ours. And when we ourselves know and recognize and acknowledge that it's, Simple, our title deed is God gave it to us. Then we understand it ourselves. Then we can have no, no qualms about telling it to the world and the world will listen To The world needs to see and, and we need to appreciate the significance of Israel for the Jewish people. And that is the message we need to tell the world that it's God who gave land, the land of Israel, as a gift to Am Yisrael. Our purpose in life is to sanctify the physical world. And that's why God assigned the specific land to us and tasked us to create there, yes, a mundane, but a divinely perfect society. And by us shining that light to the rest of the world, we will thereby fulfill our purpose of being the Oral HaGoyim, the light unto the nations. Let us recognize ourselves that the land of Israel is God's gift to the Jewish people. And thereby, we can celebrate this day, please God, soon with peace in the entire world. Wishing you all a meaningful, purposeful, splendid, magnificent, and bright Shabbos Kodesh.